Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A group called the Citizens Climate Lobby says that in light of Utah's growing air quality concerns and the real and potential effects of climate instability, the time to act is now. They're trying to act politically. Purposes, they say, are to create the political will for a stable climate and to empower individuals to have breakthroughs in exercising their personal and political power. They're engaging in nonpartisan lobbying for a gradually increasing tax on carbon-based fuels with all revenues returned as a dividend to households. They say that's a way to drive our economy away from fossil fuels and toward clean energy, and the Citizens Climate Lobbies thinks that this market-based revenue-neutral approach stands the best chance of appealing to both liberals and conservatives, thus making its way through Congress into law. They're looking to expand the number of groups in Utah to include at least one Citizens Climate Lobby group in each of Utah's four congressional districts. To that end, they're visiting in Logan today. Ben Mates and Dr. David Folland from Citizens Climate Lobby uh, have several activities. Uh, they'll be at the Logan Library, an open uh, meeting. You're invited to that Bonneville room there uh, at 7 o'clock this evening. And this afternoon at 3 o'clock, they'll be meeting with the USU Sustainability Council. That's at 3 o'clock. Uh, facilities 114 on the USU campus. And they'll also be meeting this afternoon with the Bioneers Planning Committee. And so we welcome in uh, Ben Mates. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Appreciate uh, you coming up. And uh, Dr. David Fallon, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much, Tom. We're delighted to be here. Hope you had a good trip on this somewhat snowy morning. We did. We came up yesterday evening, which was Oh, well, that, well that's smart. <laughs> that's smart. Uh, l- let me start with you, uh, Dr. Fallon. Um, w- how did you get involved in the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby? I know you're a retired pediatrician. Yeah, I retired after 32 years of being primary care of pediatrics. And I think the tipping point is when I heard a lecture at the University of Utah Law School by a professor, Naomi Oreskes, who'd written a book called Merchants of Doubt, who uh, described how uh, a concerted kind of denial effort had been mounted against tobacco, which I understood very, very well, and now was being mounted against climate change. And it kind of impelled me to go forward and really recognize climate change as an issue I needed to address. Mm. And this is, uh, I was interested when I learned about it, I only learned a few weeks ago about Citizens Climate Lobby. I think the, it's fairly new, the group? It's about six years old, okay. although it's doubling every year. So okay. it's, uh, it's been in Utah for about four years. All right. So I guess I've just been out of the loop. So no, that, it's, it's good, it's, it's good, still good small. for you to, to, to raise awareness here. Uh, it was interesting that you're you're making a political thrust, and it's just just on on that uh, what you just mentioned. I think those who are sowing doubt about climate change have been quite effective. They have been effective. In fact, there's a recent uh, report that about 400 million dollars was spent in 2012 towards groups that are trying to push denial and confuse people to make make people think that maybe climate change isn't a problem or maybe we can't do anything about it or maybe it will wreck the economy. So uh, there are very powerful, well-funded interests that would like people to believe that. We turn to Ben Mates. Uh, how and why did you get involved in the CCL? Well, um, Bill Barron is a good friend of mine, and he um, started the Utah chapter. So uh, shortly after he started the Utah chapter, which um, – meets once a month, uh, first Saturday mornings of every month. Um, I came along and, uh, you know, I've always been concerned about the environment. That's, in fact, that's how he, uh, I met Bill, was at a Bioneers conference. So, um, yeah, we, uh, I never looked back, really. Um, I've been going to the meetings ever since, and it just seems like um, one of the things you know, I, I've I've gotten so frustrated over the lack of um, hope that there's any solution, and uh, that's one thing that uh, Citizens Climate Lobby provides is a is hope. You know, there's there's a way to get in action and see the results from your action. Mm-hmm. Um, working together with other other people across the country, there's uh, now 140 groups um, all across U.S. and Canada, and we've expanded to uh, Bangladesh and Sweden as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, it's uh, it's growing, and we hope that our visit here uh, results in 141 groups uh, um, because uh, we'd like to see a group uh, start here in Logan or, or elsewhere across the state. Um, uh, so let me jump in right there. Uh, how can people contact you? You know, someone in Moab, Vernal, Delta, St. George, uh, how do you start a chapter? Well, um I guess you could. I could give my 
contact information, or I think you're going to give that on the on the website as well. Yeah. Uh, and um, so you could contact either me or Dave or uh, or Bill Barron. And uh, there's also the Citizens Climate website, uh, citizensclimatelobby.org. And, um, you know, if you contact them, uh, they have introductory calls. I think it's every Wednesday evening. Um, and there's tapes of, of those on their website as, as well if you don't can't make it Wednesday evening. So um, there are ways to get, it, get involved uh, you know, any one of those avenues. Um, we also have a Facebook page, the Citizens Climate Lobby uh, Utah Facebook page. So. As and well as a National Citizens Climate Lobby Facebook page. Okay. <clears throat> we invite uh, you to join this conversation. Uh, what do you think should be done about uh, uh, climate change? Do you think something should be done? And is, does this sound like a promising way to effect change? Or it's just tilting at windmills. I'm going to ask these, these gentlemen uh, directly, uh, given the makeup of Utah's congressional delegation. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Love to get your input. Uh, you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And uh, you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We have uh, a Citizens Climate Lobby picture up there and a brief post. You can comment uh, there. We turn back to uh, Dr. Fallon. I want to uh, take up what uh, Ben Mate said about hope. That uh, I guess this provides some hope. This is, these are some people banding together to do something. Um, what are you hearing in the community? People who who are concerned about climate change is. They've kind of been beaten down and losing a bit of hope. Working together with with this group uh, really does give hope because uh, I find that there's just such a incredible number of people that are committed or bright who are really focused on this issue and realizing that you're not alone, that other people recognize this too. So each year we have a conference in Washington, D.C. Last year we had about 350 people at the conference and uh, so people from all over the United States, all walks of life, who are willing to come on their own expense and spend a, a week talking to members of Congress, and then you get to know some of these people and uh, their own, what they're you know, wanting to do and how important it is. So uh, it really does generate hope. The other aspect of, of it is, what if we don't address this? And we could talk about that a little bit, but I think to, uh, there's enormous risks out there. So to kind of sit back and do nothing, though, is also very scary. Uh, so uh, this, this really does give us an avenue to feel like we're uh, doing something positive. This is interesting to me, as I said before. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations here on Access Utah, uh, been focused mainly, though, on individual lifestyle. Because I think that's where people think, well, I can at least change my lifestyle, right? And I can encourage my neighbors to change their lifestyle. And maybe if we get a critical mass, then we effect some change. All the while, I think a lot of people thinking it's going to take government. It's, well, go it's going to take a, a larger effort, isn't it? I'm glad you mentioned that because individual action is certainly important. We all need to do our, do our part. However, Citizens Climate Lobby was built out of a realization that more needs to be done. So our founder, Marshall Saunders, was a very successful real estate developer down in San Diego. And he became a speaker for the Climate Reality Project. He would go out and tell people they can change light bulbs and Priuses and so forth. And uh, one day when he gave one of his speeches, he opened the paper and saw that uh, something like uh, – uh, somewhat billion dollars had been appropriated to, to support the uh, oil companies. And a light kind of went on and said, yeah, hey, this has to be a systemic international change. You, uh, the United States needs to lead the way to really address the problem. And uh, he looked around for an organization that was really working with Congress, and he couldn't find one exclusively focused on that and founded our group, Citizens Climate Lobby. Mm. Can, this, can this be done? Um, especially, you know, you're you're starting with hard nut to crack, aren't you, uh, Utah's <laughs> congressional delegation? Thank you for recognizing our challenge. However, I'm heartened by people who have achieved the impossible in the past, like Nelson Mandela, who said something to the effect that it always appears impossible until it's done. And so, while the and the task looks daunting, 
the need is also so imperative that uh, we feel hopeful that it can happen. Hmm. Can I jump in Yes, there? yes, um, definitely. So I'm, I'm just recalling that when uh, Gandhi was asked what he thought of Western civilization, he said he thought it would be a good idea. Hmm. And so if you ask me what, uh, what I think about democracy, I think democracy would be a good idea, hmm. you know? It's, um, we actually replace, or we have the opportunity to replace 438 of our 535 members of Congress every two years. So, you know, that's the power is really in the hands of the people, even though, you know, there, there are a lot of there's a lot of money in politics that kind of gums up the works, you know, but uh, but really, we do have the opportunity to um, to create some change. Um, we feel like our proposal, the carbon fee and dividend proposal, even though it may be a slim chance, it has the best chance of, of making it through Congress because it's revenue neutral, so it's not going to increase the size of government, which is a concern for a lot of uh, conservative voters. And it's also market-based, so the, the government doesn't pick winners and losers. It's, it's basically just driven by the, the market, which is, has been so powerful uh, you know, in the in the preceding decades and centuries. Could I, yeah. could I say one more thing yes, about definitely. that, Tom? Our director likes to say, uh, we bet the farm on relationships. And while we don't agree with many of the positions, you mentioned our uh, Utah elected representatives, uh, we have tremendous respect for them. To go out and to campaign and to represent us in Congress is really a daunting task. There's not many people who are willing to do that. And so we want to build respectful relationships with these people. And uh, we, we meet with their staff. We meet with them. We respect them for what they do. And we try to uh, talk with them and bring them along. And while Ben says, yeah, there's a slim chance, yeah, there's a slim chance in, in 2014 in this Congress. But we're, we're in it for the long haul. We're going to work on it until it happens. It may not be this year. But our hope is actually it'll be next year. And so... While it looks daunting, and we do have some challenges right now, we do see a way through by developing these relationships and also uh, educating people and developing the will. Now, I imagine you'd have a lot of, I'm guessing a lot of people listening right now uh, agree in principle. Something needs to be done, but may not be that experienced in jumping into the political arena. I imagine the Citizens Climate Lobby, you can, what do you suggest? How to, how to get started, what, what to do? Uh, well, you know, our actions are focused on meeting, scheduling meetings with our um, members of Congress and their staff, and also writing letters to the editor, uh, also meeting with editorial boards and, um, you know, writing, submitting op-eds to newspapers. Um, these are all designed to move the, the political will in the direction we'd like to to see it move. Um, so, you know, you don't need to do any of those to, to join a group, but certainly that's, that's encouraged. Um, and you have, like, Citizens Climate Lobby is, is really a great organization because it provides support every step along the way for, uh, for taking action, you know. Um, we have a monthly meeting where we uh, listen to a guest speaker every month, and it's uh, experts in in a lot uh, in a variety of fields. Um, it could be an economist, it could be a scientist, it could be a, somebody from a faith-based group. Um, and then we take the the essence of their talk and create what we call a laser talk. So this would be some, like an elevator speech that you would give in, uh, in a couple of minutes where you hit the main points of, of the, either the statistics or, you know, the facts um, or the persuasive reasons why. And, you know, that's how we empower ourselves. We practice these talks. We, we take it out, you know, try it out on our friends and neighbors and acquaintances and, uh, and then we put down our thoughts about what we're passionate about on, on paper and submit it, you know. It doesn't uh, get published every time, but uh, a large number of them do. And we've seen 
a lot of great results and there's there's no better feeling than seeing some results of, of the action that you're taking. Hmm. Let me say one thing too, uh, related to the letters. Uh, before I retired and became involved with Citizens Climate Lobby, I think I'd maybe written one letter to the editor about a pediatric issue, really never done that. And we know though that our elected representatives and their staff read the letters, read the op-eds, read the editorials. And so that's why we put an emphasis there. Well, one of our members uh, in, in Salt Lake Citizens Climate Lobby said, well, let's have a writer's workshop. Let's just meet once a month. Uh, we meet in Salt Lake Roasting Company. Let's come with some letters, with some op-eds, and let's get, give each other input. Well, with that, we not only have produced very excellent letters, in my opinion, and, and op-eds, but we've produced a lot of them. So in this last year in Salt Lake, we've had 33 letters to the editor and 17 op-eds. And so uh, that's that kind of group community support that, that helps you. So uh, we had a person recently join the group. She had submitted an op-ed to the Salt Lake Tribune. It had been returned. So she brought it to the writer's workshop. She took some ideas from there, resubmitted it, and it was uh, printed about two weeks ago. Mm. And so uh, getting that community support in the climate lobby can really take a person from a, uh, a situation where they maybe haven't done any of these things. They maybe seem a little daunting to speak about it or write about it or something like that and have support so they can do it. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll talk uh, more with uh, Ben Mates and Dr. David Volland from the Citizens Climate Lobby. They're in Logan today for uh, various activities. After Access Utah today, they're going to be meeting with the USU Sustainability Council. If you'd like to join that meeting, that's in uh, Facilities 114 on the USU campus, 3 o'clock this afternoon. The main meeting is the Logan Library in the Bonneville Room at 7 o'clock this evening. Everyone is invited to that. The purpose of these two gentlemen is to uh, create a Logan chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. If you'd like to join up, uh, do go to that meeting, or you can uh, contact the CCL. We'll put some contact information on our website following this program. Uh, they're also meeting with the Bioneers Planning Committee, so a lot of activities. If you're interested in starting up a, uh, a chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby where you are, as well. Uh, you can certainly do that, and the CCL is encouraging that. And uh, maybe the best way right now to uh, take a look at uh, what it's all about is citizensclimatelobby.org. We're going to take a break, uh, be back with uh, Ben Mates and Dr. David Folland. By the way, the number is 1 800 826 1495. 1 800 826 1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And we'd love to hear from you. More following the break. This week in This American Life, one of our producers, Ben, has this friend who told him that when he, the friend, goes to a store, like, to buy a pair of shoes, he'll say to the cashier, so is there a good guy discount? Like, you're a good guy, I'm a good guy. And he gets, like, 25% off. Ben is not the kind of person who would ever, ever try that until this week. Tune in Sunday afternoons at 2. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering honey crumb granola, cinnamon monkey bread, and vegetarian quiche. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're asking, what do you do about climate change? If you agree that uh, it's a pressing, urgent problem, something needs to be done, then the question arises, what to do? And uh, so, as I mentioned, we've, uh, we've had a lot of comment on this program about uh, individual action, because I think that's where, obviously, you, can, you feel that you can have an effect, is you can change your individual lifestyle but uh, if you think that something needs to be done on a larger scale, governmental action, then I think a lot of people are stuck. And Ben Mates, one of my guests, uh, talked about a sort of a lack of hope out there. This, this, this group and joining the group uh, gave him hope. Uh, ben Mates and Dr. David Folland are uh, with me from the Citizens Climate Lobby. We'd love to hear uh, your perspective. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, 
Um, before we went to the break, uh, Dr. Folland, we were, uh, Ben Mates was explaining a little bit uh, about a proposal that Citizens Climate Lobby is pushing. Uh, I think this is a sort of a, I don't know, you might call it the lowest common denominator. It's, it's something you feel that uh, you might get uh, support on both the liberal and conservative side and therefore get through Congress. I wonder if you could expand on this. You're not calling it a tax, uh, which would be unwise politically, um, you're, but you're, you're calling it a, what is it? Well, different people in the climate lobby at different times will either call it a revenue-neutral tax swap or <clears throat> carbon fee and dividend proposal. Uh, if you look at actually the words, uh, if 100% of the revenues go back to individuals, you could really call it a fee because it's not a tax that's being used to pay off the deficit or to do other things in, in government. Uh, so we don't necessarily avoid the word tax. However, we do know that for many people with whom we talk, if we say the word tax, sometimes it turns them off you know, right, right immediately. But um, we also know when this gets into Congress, there'll maybe be a lot of other constituencies. We, w- we would love to see this go 100% back to households for a couple of reasons. One is that the, the people who would be affected the most severely by this are poorer people who spend a higher percent of their income on things like fuel and things kind of related to carbon. However, those are the people, if you look at their total expense for carbon, is less. So about two-thirds of households would come out ahead. One-third would actually be paying more. So even though the dividend would come back to them. But uh, everybody, as they're making decisions on, like, what kind of a car to buy or uh, – you know, other, you know, other things. Whether you're going to uh, buy mater- uh, foods that are imported from Chile versus locally, for instance, um, you know, this will influence you know kind of those decisions. So, uh, one other thing, though, about uh, having this revenue come back to households, we think that this needs to be this this fee or tax needs to be increased on a, a predictable basis over a number of years. Um, and to keep the support of citizens, that I think once citizens start getting this uh, rebate uh, or dividend that comes back to them, they're going to want to preserve it. Uh, just like in Alaska, they get a rebate there. My son lived in Alaska, and people really look after that rebate. So we think the rebate portion is both fair, but is also important for possibly continuation, continuing this until it really is having the effect. Hmm. Do, do you, Ben Mates, do you have conservative support for this idea? Well, uh, recently we had a visit here in Utah by uh, a gentleman uh, named um, Bob English. In- English, Bob English. English, excuse me. Um, and he was a, a very conservative um, congressional representative from South Carolina. And he was voted out of office once he... Uh, started expressing his concerns. He, he looked at the science and, and uh, realized that uh, we've got a problem. And um, so he was proposing solutions for that, and uh, that was a reason for him not to, to be reelected. But he went on to, to start an organization called the Energy and Environment. Enter- it's called the Energy en- and Enterprise Initiative. Energy and Enterprise Initiative. Uh, back in Washington, D.C., and he's basically proposing uh, a very similar um, piece of legislation. Uh, he would actually call it a tax swap, um, and instead of getting a dividend back, uh, he would actually reduce other taxes, either payroll taxes or income taxes. So, you know, it was great to have him come and speak to us because he really speaks the language of, of conservatives. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's just uh, kind of refreshing to, to be able to hear things from uh, just a different perspective that, uh, you know, to, to conservatives, it, it's, it's what really makes sense, you know. Um, so I guess to answer your question, I, I'm not sure that there is a lot of um, conservative support at this time. You know, we're still in a, in a huge discussion over the, the validity of the, of the, the science around it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the, 
the IPCC, the, the most recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, came out and even stronger um, certainty that uh, that global warming or climate change is caused by um, by humans. Mm. Could I say a couple of things about uh, Bob Inglis too, because he's certainly a champion uh, uh, in our eyes <clears throat> among the conservatives. But since we're here on the Logan University campus, you might be interested to know. So, Bob Inglis was in Congress <clears throat> when his son turned 18, was going off to college and can vote. He said, "Dad, uh, I'll." support you, but I can't vote for you if you maintain your denial about climate change. Mm. So that stimulated him to go back and look at the science, and he was convinced that the science is real, it's a real threat. And he, he felt that it was often rejected because conservatives didn't see a solution that didn't somehow involve government. So they just you know pretty much rejected it. And in fact, the best prediction predictor of a person's view on climate change is what's their party affiliation, actually. Mm. So um, anyway, uh, he, he sponsored climate legislation. Uh, as Ben said, he was voted out. Uh, when he came here, he spent two days here. He had 15 engagements. It happened to be the interim day of the legislature. He was able to speak before the caucuses of every caucus up at the legislature. So he was up uh, in front of all of our Utah legislators. And then there was an open house, and we had about 25 Utah legislators who, who spoke with him. So we were really delighted about his uh, uh, ability to reach people here for the two days he was in Utah. Hmm. Of course, uh, what's ringing in my mind is he lost. <laughs> he converted on climate change, and he lost. <laughs> yeah. what, so, what, do you, what do you do about yeah. that? Well, let me, let me suggest, if anybody is piqued of interest by this, there's a 17-minute video on YouTube by Bob Inglis, I-N-G-L-I-S, <clears throat> that he— uh, no, this was a TED Talk, excuse me, it was a TED Talk, uh, TEDx Talk, uh, where he talked about uh, a month ago. And he'll uh, tell the story a little bit. He feels a lot of this was, was timing. So it was during the recession. People were very focused on, on jobs, on economy. And he said something, note to self, do not sponsor climate legislation during a recession. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the rise of the Tea Party at that time. Uh, he, he saw those two things really come together, and so he feels it was really the timing that was bad, not the policy that was bad. But, but do you think in today's climate or in the near future that a conservative uh, can uh, express an, uh, that kind of an opinion on this issue and uh, not get primaried, as, as they say? So uh, I, I don't know. I, I I don't have the political answer to that. Uh, it is interesting. What I'm seeing is many Republicans, for instance, who are <clears throat> no longer uh, in Congress or in their positions who are speaking out. For instance, uh, former uh, Secretary of State George Shultz um, uh, has, has, has spoken out. Uh, many Republican economists have spoken out on the need for a carbon tax or the need for this. Uh, as we've spoken to the staff of many Republicans in Congress, many of the staff people are willing to admit that climate change is real, that this is an issue, but publicly they can't say it, and publicly uh, they can't. So this is part of what we're having to do in Citizens' Climate Lobby is, is generate the political will so that our politicians know that we as citizens care about the climate. We want them to address solutions. So uh, we still have a long road ahead, no question about it. But this is where it starts. And if we look at uh, any number of movements, whether it's uh, uh, you know, human rights or uh, women voting or any number of things, uh, when they started out, it didn't look like they were going to happen. And eventually the political will came and it happened. You're, you're hopeful. Then. Yes, I guess you 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 would have to be to yes <laughs> to uh, to engage in this. What 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 are you, what what's your best case scenario? Best case scenario is that the goal that Citizens Climate Lobby has now of getting a bill passed in 2015 uh, will actually happen. Now, um, again, I, I don't see exactly the road forward how that's going to happen. But I'm encouraged that, for instance, our organization is, is doubling every, uh, every year. I'm encouraged that many other groups now are looking at this and saying, hey, a carbon tax is something that makes sense. So, for instance, uh, recently five oil companies, including Exxon, <coughs> Mobil, and Shell, 
have priced a carbon tax into their long-term planning, not because they want a carbon tax, but just that they say, hey, I think they, they think a carbon tax is inevitable. Uh, many faith groups are stepping up. There's a group called uh, Interfaith Power and Light, and there's a, a, a chapter in Utah, Interfaith Power and Light, uh, faith groups uh, you know, stepping up and saying this. Um, we mentioned business groups. There's a group called BICEP, uh, uh, businesses, uh, these are businesses like uh, Nike and Starbucks who have banded together to say we need energy policy. So the voices now are coming from many different directions, and so this has given me hope too. You mentioned in one of your op-ed pieces uh, that the insurance industry is pricing in uh, climate change. Well, particularly the reinsurance industry. So mm-hmm. the reinsurance industry is the industry that covers when there's catastrophic um, events. And what they have seen, and there's uh, uh, an insurance company particularly called Munich Ray, which is one of the biggest reinsurance companies. What they have seen as <clears throat> in catastrophic climate-related disasters <clears throat> like hurricanes, that uh, their, uh, their liabilities have increased substantially. And in fact, uh, if you look at, <clears throat> at uh, Catastrophes like earthquakes, they haven't really changed much over the last 20 years. But if you look at climate-related catastrophes, they have. So for them, it's real. For them, it's planning for their financial future to take climate change into account. Hmm. Let me reintroduce my guests. So I'm talking with uh, Dr. David Folland. He's a retired pediatrician, Salt Lake City area. He is involved with the Citizens Climate Lobby. That's what we're talking about today. This is a group that was started some six years ago, I think you said, uh, came to Utah about four years ago. They're trying to raise their profile. What they're trying to do is create political will for a stable climate. They're, they're acting politically, op-ed pieces, contact your congressman, that sort of thing, and uh, mutual support, it sounds like, as well, and uh, and help. We're also talking with Ben Mates from the organization, and they're in Logan uh, to uh, try to start a chapter of uh, Citizens Climate Lobby in Logan. So if you're interested in that, there's an, a meeting this evening at 7 o'clock in the Logan Library in the Bonneville Room. That's 7 o'clock tonight in Logan, um, and it's free and open to the public. And uh, you can also uh, join a, uh, a meeting they're going to have th- uh, th- at 3 o'clock this afternoon in uh, Facilities 114 on the USU campus. They're meeting with the USU Sustainability Conference, also uh, meeting with the Bioners Planning Committee. Uh, the website by the way, is citizensclimatelobby.org, and we'll get some more uh, content information for you up on our website following the program. Uh, more with Ben Mates and Dr. David Folland following this brief break. Did you know that students can enhance their online education when they connect with their professors? A live chat or a phone interview of an exam helps the faculty member know what challenges students are facing. It also gives them something to draw from when asked to write a letter of recommendation. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Dining Services and University Catering hosting the second annual Campus Cook-Off on Wednesday, February 12th. Details and entry packets available at the Dining Office, TSC, Room 232. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about climate change. And uh, You might roll your eyes, uh, climate change again. Uh, we've we've talked this to death. Um, although I do know that uh, that a lot of you do, uh, you know, f- find this of great concern and want to find a solution. Uh, well, here's a uh, seems like a fresh approach. Uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is a group that uh, started about six years ago, came to Utah about four years ago, uh, and they're st- trying to start today a Logan chapter. Uh, you can uh, join them and uh, find out a lot more about that at the Logan Library in the Bonneville Room, seven o'clock this evening. Also, you could uh, join them with the USU Sustainability Council, a meeting with that group at five, uh, 3 o'clock this afternoon, facilities 114 on the USU campus. And we're talking about it, of course, on the program today. Uh, they're trying to find a bipartisan solution, something, anything, that will uh, appeal to liberals and conservatives and perhaps make its way through Congress. They're focusing on the federal 
um, end of this. And uh, so they've been talking about a, uh, a carbon uh, tax, a carbon fee and dividend, and we'll uh, talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I think they're also smiling upon uh, President Obama's recent uh, proposal. And maybe uh, in this segment of the program, we could start there after I get the phone number, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, Dr. Fallon, do, what's this proposal from the Obama administration? Well, the Obama administration <clears throat> has uh, said that the FDA uh, should uh, look at carbon dioxide as a as a pollutant. Uh, the Supreme Court has said it is, and that uh, they should go about uh, controlling coal power, uh, coal-fired power plants based on their carbon pollution. And this would result in both retiring uh, old coal-fired power plants and also then new coal-fired power plants having to have uh, the best... Uh, a possible possible uh, reduction not only of pollutants like mercury and things like that, but also efficient use so that they have the, the least amount of carbon dioxide. While we applaud that completely because it, it's, it raises climate change to something that, hey, we need to address as policy, uh, we don't see that as effective policy. Many people have said by the time this gets through the courts, it may be 10 years before it actually gets into effect. And it only is looking at a very small part of the total economy. So that's why we think that a market-based approach, which ours is, that really can affect the whole economy is really, really important. Uh, and another part of that, though, I, I would say that we feel is important is that this has to be a international approach. CO2 emissions have actually decreased over the past 10 years, while world emissions have increased. Uh, carbon dioxide, as most of our listeners know, is up to 400 parts per million last year. Uh, but how does the United States become a leader in the world stage? We need to have our own energy policy. We need to step up. And so that's why we think a market-based solution that conservatives, uh, I think, once they get the political pressure to uh, agree something needs to begin to be done, will say, yeah, this is mo the most likely thing. And we think it's uh, going to be more effective than the EPA regulations, even though we applaud that those have been initiated. Mm. Ben Mates, uh, maybe you could follow up on, on this proposal, at a carbon fee and dividend, maybe you call it. Some people are calling it a tax. Uh -huh. what, what would the effect of that, of that be? Well, um, really it would, would hold uh, the fossil fuel industry accountable for the externalized costs of burning fossil fuels. So basically now there's no price signal that, that, uh, that is incorporated into into our economy to motivate us to to move toward a, a clean energy economy. So basically, what this would do, uh, you know, it would stimulate us. It would motivate us to make clean energy choices in all of our purchasing decisions. Um, if and especially if you know that this fee on carbon is going to increase over, you know, the next. Each year, it's going to increase a little bit, and in ten years, it's going to be quite substantially more than it than it is now, or that it would be now. So basically, um, businesses, especially and government, uh, they love predictability. They like to be able to plan and, and foresee and take things into account, and you know, know know what's coming. Um, so they could actually start making these decisions to uh, adopt clean energy practices and, and technologies. What this would do would, would really be to stimulate innovation in the, in the clean energy sector and also create a lot of, of, of new jobs. You know, when the, when the word processors started coming into, into play and, uh, you know, uh, as a new technology, um, the typewriter manufacturers were quickly absorbed into that. So the fact that we're, we may be moving toward a clean energy economy doesn't mean that uh, necessarily that there's going to be undue hardship for the, the fossil fuel industry. I think economies are great at absorbing change and moving forward with that, you know. Uh, 
you know, um, auto manufacturers screamed and yelled when we uh, said that you have to institute seatbelts. But now it's just a common common occurrence. So I think it could be a smooth transition. And when you look at the other side of things, if we do nothing, then we're looking at a possible crash. You know, we'd rather have a smooth landing than a than a uh, a crash of any sort, whether that's from peak oil, whether that's from um, the increase in frequency and intensity of climate disasters. Um, it's also tied to our air quality, which is a big concern here in Utah. Uh, if we move to a clean energy economy, we actually are going to eliminate a lot of other costs that are we currently internalize because of the burning of fossil fuels, mm-hmm. um, healthcare costs, um, even military costs, as we uh, don't have to secure the supply line, the global supply lines for um, our oil and uh, other fossil fuel um, resources, then uh, we could potentially decrease the size of, the, of our military. Mm. Um, Tom, could I yes. say just one thing, too, about the challenge in the transition? I think we do have to realize that fossil fuels has given us our lifestyle that we enjoy in the Western uh, world. Uh, some people have estimated that to have the uh, the treasures that we have in our uh, in our lifestyle, it, it would require 200 servants a day to do what fossil fuels do for us. And so we all use fossil fuels. But now, for instance, we know the health effects, the downside effects of that. And one of the encouraging things, though, is a study by Mark Jacobson, who is a Stanford University professor. Uh, he and his colleagues have studied and, and looked at, is it really possible? Are there really the resources out there with wind, solar, and geothermal to power the world? And he says, uh, from his studies, yeah, uh, on a global basis, there's about seven times more power out there from those sources you know, than is really needed. Now, that's a global look. He's actually in the process now of doing this for each state. And by next year, hopefully, we'll have this. There, there has been one done by uh, Heal Utah saying, you know, what are our clean energy resources uh, in Utah? But he's doing this for each state. Like, what, you know, what are the resources there that can do it? They've done it for California. They've done it for New York and says— Hey, those resources are there. The, the challenge is the transition, and that's what we hope to drive with this policy, carbon mm-hmm. fee and dividend. By the way, on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, we have a response from Charles Ashurst. He says, sign me up. So uh, <laughs> thanks, Charles. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to put some contact information on our website uh, following the program. Is that the best way for people to how, – how, Yes. How can Charles get signed up? I think that would be best. Uh, I'd be happy to give – can I give some contact information yes. over the phone? My yes, phone yes. number – is uh, 801-942-1426. My email is uh, dsfolland at gmail.com. And uh, call me or email me, and uh, we'll have to talk with you. Okay. Early in the program, uh, one of you, I can't remember who, uh, mentioned that you practice your elevator pitch. And I, I wonder especially, um, well, I wonder if you give that to me. Especially maybe with with uh, and and pretend you're talking to somebody who's not quite sold on on the need for for action, uh, and that would describe a fair number of people that you would come in contact with in in Utah anyway. So I, w- I would just say that uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is a, a national and even international group that is um, lobbying our members of Congress <clears throat> for effective climate legislation. Um, our specific proposal is the carbon fee and dividend proposal, and it would place a gradually increasing fee on carbon at the source, either the mine, the wellhead, or the port of entry, um, and then return 100% of the revenues generated uh, back to households as a dividend. So this would be a way to stimulate a clean energy economy um, with a, a minimal um, impact on, uh, you know, the status quo or the, you know, the, all the things that we enjoy, um, currently, but it would be a sure way to, uh, to actually affect that change. Um, and so I, I'm sure there's more, Dave, do you want to mm-hmm. jump in? Well, you said the elevator speech, maybe for somebody who's, uh, maybe questioning or, or skeptical and, 
actually, I don't have an elevator speech for that. Uh, when I first realized how serious and significant this problem was, I told everybody in my family multiple times in, in long-winded diatribes, and they went to sleep and it turned them off, uh, <laughs> and it was not very effective. Mm -hmm. So in terms of <clears throat> elevator, quote, speech, uh, I really try to engage in a di dialogue. You know, where are you coming from? What are you thinking? What are your concerns? I think that's uh, really more effective. However, in the elevator speeches we have each month that we learn. So, for instance, last month the elevator speech was related to the carbon bubble. That is, the IPCC says if we burn more than 500 billion tons of fossil fuels, we'll shoot over two degrees centigrade. And it's just the math of the of, of the science there. And so it was around that. You know, how how can you talk about the carbon bubble, for instance? And, and those are the kinds of things that we have in our, quote, laser talks or elevator speeches. Right. You mentioned um, diatribe and going to sleep and that's uh, that's uh, or yelling at each other. That seems to be the tenor of the of the dialogue uh, these days. Um, people who believe this is an urgent problem point to the science. A lot of those who don't believe it's a urgent problem say, I don't believe in the science. And then that, that makes the people on the other side crazy. And, and uh, then you, you end up with this, this, this divide. How, how do you bridge that? Well, I, I've decided it, it's almost like talking about religion because people come from two different kind of worldviews in terms of looking at it, and they use different sources for their information. So, for instance, a study that was done by the Union Concerned Scientist about Fox News that said 80%, like 86% of the material that was on Fox News that related to climate change was either false or inaccurate. So people who listen to Fox News primarily as their news source are going to have a different set of information, a different orientation than somebody who listens to uh, maybe a different source. So I think first off is to recognize that uh, and, and uh, begin where you can with common ground. So for instance, one thing that we, we try uh, often common ground is people are concerned about their kids and their grandkids. What do you see about the future and, and what are concerns? So again, hopefully uh, getting a dialogue. The other point though is that uh, we don't have to have everybody on board. All the way through this, there's gonna be opposition. And personally, I've stopped trying to convince those people who are completely in the other camp, who don't want to listen, who have a completely different uh, world orientation, unless they happen to be a senator or representative or their staff. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I think there's enough people now who are coming on board who are recognizing that. If we can help those people get a path to action, that I think that's our, our time is better spent with that than trying to convince people who are so entrenched on the other side. Mm. We just have a minute left. We'll give uh, Ben Mates the the last word. What do you, do you, you see? This is a growing movement, uh, and what are your what the, what are the goals? So it's absolutely growing. Uh, like we've mentioned, it's doubled every year, um, and there are, um, I would say, other organizations that are um, kind of collaborating, and we're forming coalitions. Um, we recently met with. Uh, Representative or Congressman Matheson, and uh, he is part of a group called the No Labels, which was started by former Governor John Huntsman. And um, basically, they're trying to, to, to go beyond party lines to, uh, to really address and, and have some effective uh, action out of, out of Congress. So we propose that he adopt this as uh, um, one of the things that, uh, or to, to raise this as a possible um, issue for the No Labels group to, to uh, take up. So, you know, I think it's, uh, it's definitely growing. Um, we could use all the support we can get. Um, one of the things that Bob Inglis mentioned was that, uh, you know, it's, it's the language that you use that's, that's often really important. And rather than um, talking about this as some kind of catastrophic thing that needs to be addressed, um, you know, in the conservative viewpoint, it's much more helpful to talk about it as uh, taking reasonable steps to address a risk, you know, that, that, that there is a, a risk. And, you know, if, uh, if, your doc if 100 doctors tell you that uh, you need to, to do something, then uh, you might want to think about uh, taking taking steps to uh, 
to address what they're talking about. And we'll, uh, we'll end it right there, out of time. It's the Citizens Climate Lobby there in Logan. The meeting, the main meeting, is Logan Library, 7 o'clock tonight. We've been talking with Dr. David Falland and with uh, Ben Mates. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. I was a bit rattled last month when it was reported on the news that a six-year-old boy was kicked out of school for kissing a little girl's hand. Yep, her hand. All the usual reasons were given by the school. Zero tolerance for sexual harassment. Zero tolerance for aggressive behavior. Zero tolerance for not respecting personal space, etc. I could sympathize with such policies if they address some really disturbing socially taboo issues. But coming down with the full weight of a school board's law on a six-year-old who kissed a classmate's hand? It's not hard to figure out where the tyke came up with the idea. Since hand-kissing is not a typical American custom, most likely he saw it in a movie or on TV, or he might even have seen a man he knew kiss the hand, European style, of his mother or friend's mom. How was he to know that if he did it, it would be viewed as a sex crime rather than a gallant and gracious gesture? And how were his parents to even anticipate he would copy the gesture and that it would cause a scandal of national proportions? If you hear your child use a bad word, you pull her aside and chide her, warning her that it is not polite nor socially acceptable to use such words. But there are things children do that parents can't possibly foresee, such as hand-kissing. Yet even if the six-year-old's parents had, I doubt they would have warned their little boy that it was bad form and would lead to his suspension from first grade. And to think of all the sexually aggressive activity that went on when I was in grade school. Why, every February 14th, we would have paper bags filled with valentines dumped on our desks. The cards from boyfriends and girlfriends alike declared undying love, portrayed fluttering hearts, boys and girls holding hands, boys and girls kissing, and literally begged you to be someone's valentine. Now, if that wasn't sexual aggression, I don't know what is. But were we kids offended? No, indeedy. The only possible offense taken was if your best friend had received more cards than you. In middle school, there was a game involving an origami-like piece of folded paper that had cryptic clues written within its folds. These clues were passed around at recess and on the playground, and from them, one was to guess who liked whom and who wanted to be someone's boyfriend or girlfriend. Were we penalized for playing the game? Not at all. It was a natural preteen kind of flirting, and no one saw anything remiss in it. Even in high school, it was okay to hold hands, go steady, wear someone's letter jacket, and even snuggle at the sock hop. Do these acts of affection still happen today, or are they also banned? I'm just trying to figure out when it became bad, even actionable, for young children to show affection and do what children do naturally, mimic grown-ups. Of course, as adults, we are definitely required to step in to make sure kids don't take up the nastier grown-up habits, such as smoking, swearing, and sexually lewd conduct. But stepping in certainly should not mean suspending a six-year-old from school for hand-kissing. I think we can all agree that the punishment in that case was way out of proportion to the so-called crime. Maybe a cautionary lecture from his teacher or, here's a thought, a note to his folks would have sufficed. You think? This is Gina Wickwar. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering daily soups, including Clam Chowder Friday, on the last Friday of every month. Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1, 91.